When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Avec John Adams, il ne sera pas de même. With John Adams, it will not be the same. Cette vanité inflexible, cette confiance absolue en lui-même. This unyielding vanity, this absolute confidence in himself. Cet entêtement qui le caractérise ne lui permettront jamais d'écouter ni de suivre les conseils des personnes. That iniquity which characterizes him will never allow him to listen or follow the advice of anyone. Et encore moins, sous Damotin, qu'il déteste. Let alone that of Hamilton, whom he hates. When John Adams took the oath of office on March 4, 1797, it was the first peaceful transfer of power from one federal chief executive to another in American history. It would set a precedent that continues on to the present day, 2018, as of this recording. It would mark the retirement of a man who, since 1775, had been a prominent leader of his nation and seen as the personification of the ideals of the United States, and would bring to power a man who, despite his lengthy career of public service, had no executive experience in his background and was not well known by the general public. Meanwhile, Franco-American relations were at their lowest ebb since the founding of the nation. A creeping economic downturn was steadily gaining steam. Partisan tensions were higher than they had ever been. And the nation was looking to the new president for solutions. With his inaugural address, Adams would begin to try to provide some answers to his countrymen. Before he does, though, I'd like to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. First of all, I'd like to thank Dan McClellan for providing the English portion of this episode's intro quote. Dan is a friend from my non-podcasting life who has been listening to the Adams series and graciously volunteered his voice for this episode. If you would be interested in providing an intro quote for a future episode, feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or email, all of which will be provided at the end of the episode. While the majority of this episode will be devoted to exploring the early days of the Adams presidency, I think it only fair to turn back for a moment to the election that got Adams to the oath of office. As discussed in episode 1.34, the 1796 election was the most contentious that the United States had seen to that point. Federalists attacked Jefferson by claiming that he was an atheist and would cause the U.S. to, quote, degenerate into a wretched state of barbarism, despite the fact that Jefferson had a better church attendance record as a public official than Washington or Adams. Adams was accused of being a monarchist by essayists who picked apart his printed works and distorted his expressed thoughts. Jefferson was charged with having a, quote, soft philosophic character that would cause him to, quote, cut and run at the appearance of some black cloud or a sudden clap of thunder. Adams was to be feared, or so charged Democratic Republicans, as he had, quote, sons who might aim to succeed their father. On and on it went, until finally the votes were cast and counted, and the nation knew that Adams would be the next president 
and Jefferson, the next vice president. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As Inauguration Day drew near, Adams received calls from Federalist and Democratic Republicans alike. Benjamin Rush, though long having anti-administration sentiments, paid a call on Adams on the last day of 1796 to tell him of his quote-unquote vast pleasure at Adams' election. From Representative James Madison, he learned that Jefferson had written a letter on December 17th instructing Madison that, should the Electoral College vote result in a tie, Madison should, quote, solicit on my behalf that Mr. Adams may be preferred. He has always been my senior from the commencement of our public life, and the expression of the public will being equal, this circumstance ought to give him the preference. Even the Democratic-Republican press took up a better Adams than Washington theme, with Benjamin Franklin Bosch's Aurora asserting that, unlike Washington, Adams, quote, would not be a puppet and lived, quote, with the simplicity of a Republican. The president-elect would be called on by the French consul general, Joseph-Philippe Letoum, who assured Adams that it had not been the intention of the directory, the government then in charge of the French Republic, for French minister Pierre Gostadet to interfere in the election in an attempt to throw support towards the pro-French Democratic Republicans, though, as we learned in episode 1.34, the French government had, in fact, given Adet such instructions. No matter, everyone was in a good mood as the big day approached. Well, nearly everyone. After the votes were counted on February 8th and the reality of Adams becoming the next president started to settle in, the president-elect had to turn to practical matters. He and Abigail had decided that she would not come to Philadelphia in the spring, and instead, John would go back to Quincy in the summer, then the two would return together to the capital in the fall. This left John with the task of making household arrangements as his, quote, bachelor quarters as vice president would not do for having a home office and for the entertaining that was expected of the president. Now, if you'll take your mind back a ways to episode 1.8 and the initial move of the government to Philadelphia as the temporary capital, you may recall that the home that Washington resided in after the move was one at the corner of Market and Sixth Streets owned by Robert Morris, the so-called financier of the revolution. However, this was an arrangement between Morris and Washington. There was no guarantee that the new president would be able to use the same house. John wrote to Abigail the day after the Electoral College vote that, quote, I must wait to know whether Congress will do anything or not to furnish my house. If they do not, I will have no house before next fall, and then a very moderate one, with very moderate furniture. By March 3rd, Congress had passed a law giving Adams $14,000 to buy furniture, and arrangements had been made for Adams to take up the renting of the Morris Mansion in which Washington had resided for $2,700 a year. But at the last minute, a new offer came in. Back when the Capitol moved to Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania legislature had approved legislation to build a presidential mansion a few blocks over from Washington's rented house on 9th Street between Chestnut and Market Streets. It was hoped that, by constructing buildings for the use of the federal government, Congress and the president might be induced to just keep the capital in Philly rather than moving it down to the Potomac. 
As construction on the house was wrapping up around the time of the inauguration, it seemed like the perfect time to hand it over to the federal government. However, the bill to do so failed to pass in the Pennsylvania state legislature. Thus, on March 3rd, Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin wrote to Adams offering him the house for rent at a rate, quote, for which you might obtain any other suitable house in Philadelphia. Adams immediately declined the offer as he was concerned whether he was constitutionally, quote, at liberty to accept it without the intervention and authority of Congress. Though he did not relish the idea of taking up residence in the house owned by Morris as the rent was high on his $25,000 a year salary, and he wrote to Abigail that, quote, we shall be put to great difficulty to live, and that in not one-third the style of Washington. John still made ready to move into the president's house as soon as Washington should vacate it. Another bit of business in preparation for taking the reins of power was in deciding what to do about the president's cabinet. Though Washington had set many precedents during his tenure, this would potentially be one set by Adams as the president-elect in the first presidential transition. There were a couple of factors at play in the decision, as he discussed in a letter on February 13th to his friend Elbridge Jerry. As you may recall from episode 1.34, Franco-American relations were at an all-time low, in no small part due to Secretary of State Timothy Pickering's antagonizing the French minister to the U.S. His incendiary letter of November 2nd was still fresh on the minds of those following foreign policy, and it was still to be seen how extensive the fallout from it would be. Adams admitted to Jerry that he had kept silent during the debacle, quote, to leave me wholly out of the question but noted that he and his administration would have to deal with the consequences. Did he really want someone who could be so undiplomatic as his Secretary of State? Besides, Washington had had to settle for many of his later cabinet members. Perhaps it was time to see about attracting new talent to the administration. However, the point that would ultimately decide the matter in Adams' mind was the fact that, though they may not always have been his first choice, this cabinet had been chosen by George Washington himself. As Adams would later note, quote, Washington had appointed them, and I knew it would turn the world upside down if I removed any one of them. I had then no particular objection to any of them. They were all Federalists, after all, just as he had discovered during the past year of the election and transition that he and Washington were on the same ideological wavelength and in sync in their viewpoints on the issues of the day. It is likely that Adams expected he would find the same with his cabinet. As he told Jerry, quote, Pickering and all his colleagues are as much attracted to me as I desire. I have no jealousies from that quarter. Though I haven't seen this mentioned anywhere, I also wonder if the difficulty that Washington had faced in filling some of his cabinet posts in the second term also came into play in this decision to retain Washington's cabinet. The last thing the new administration needed while getting off the ground was a long, protracted back and forth of being turned down by one prospective candidate after another, only to end up settling for someone lesser known or of lesser quality. Perhaps Adams thought it best to let sleeping dogs lie for the moment while he worked with his new vice president to smooth partisan tensions that would then make surfing in the cabinet more of an attractive prospect to the best and brightest. Likewise, the diplomatic corps as it stood would remain intact. During his last days in Philadelphia, Washington shared some words of advice not just for the new president, but also for the career of Adams' son, John Quincy. Washington had written to Adams on February 20th expressing his, quote, strong hope, and I should note that these words were underlined for emphasis, 
that you will not withhold merited promotion from Mr. John Quincy Adams because he is your son. Mr. Adams is the most valuable public character we have abroad, and that there remains no doubt in my mind that he will prove himself to be the ablest of all our diplomatic corps. This strong endorsement from Washington ensured that John Quincy would remain in Europe as his father's eyes and ears. But to be fair, there doesn't seem to be any indication that I found that Adams had any desire to shake up the diplomatic corps. With his decision made to retain those administration officials already in place at home and abroad, Mr. Adams proceeded on towards Inauguration Day 1797 with what we would now call a laser-sharp focus on addressing the tensions with France by making his only planned deviation from the current course of the administration. As discussed in Episodes 1.33 and 1.34, the outgoing president had recalled James Monroe as U.S. Minister to France and sent Charles Coatsworth Pinckney to replace him. But as the inauguration approached, word had not been received about Pinckney's reception and Monroe had not returned to the U.S. Thus, when the vice president-elect arrived in Philadelphia, according to Jefferson's later recollections, Franco-American relations were the first topic that Adams wished to discuss when they met. A side note, though, before we get to that. If you'll recall from episode 1.34, Jefferson had requested that no ceremony be made for his arrival in the Capitol so that his coming would be done, quote, as covertly as possible. Either Madison didn't get the message or conveniently forgot to convey it, as Jefferson, upon his arrival in Philadelphia on March 2nd, quote, was met by a company of artillery and welcomed by a discharge of 16 rounds from two 12-pounders. A flag was displayed, bearing the device, Jefferson, the friend of the people. Not conspicuous at all. Anyway, as was customary, Jefferson called on Adams upon his arrival. But what was not customary, and has been interpreted as a sign of respect and a genuine commitment to bridge the partisan divide, Adams returned the favor the next morning by visiting Jefferson at the Madisons, where he was lodging temporarily. It was here where Adams launched into the discussion of the situation with France, with Adams sharing his desire to send Jefferson to Paris to serve as a special envoy with Pinckney, but admitting that it was probably not prudent, quote, to send away the person destined to take his place in case of an accident to himself. Adams then shared his thoughts to send Elbridge Gerry and James Madison to form a bipartisan three-man commission with Pinckney. While Jefferson felt that Madison would not consent to serve in such a capacity, he did give Adams his assurance that he would feel him out on the possibility. Now, in a note that I'd like you to remember in a moment, Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum states that around the same time, quote, leading Federalists proposed that Madison be sent to France as a minority member in a special conciliatory commission. We'll come back to this in a moment, but for now, let's move this bipartisan party on to Inauguration Day. John Furling describes that, quote, sleep was difficult for Adams on the night before his inauguration, and the next morning he found himself gripped by terrible anxiety as he waited for the last hours to pass before the ceremony. When the time came, though, he boarded the new $1,500 carriage that he had purchased and departed from the Francis Hotel on 4th Street and made his way to Congress Hall. Now, we think of the U.S. Capitol today as a large building filled with rooms, offices, statuary, and of course the two legislative chambers. Congress Hall was not that. It is now a part of the Independence National Historic Park in Philadelphia and sits next to Independence Hall. The building is dominated by the legislative chambers, the House Chamber on the ground floor, and the Senate Chamber on the floor above. 
though there are some rooms for committee meetings. Jefferson took his oath of office in the Senate chamber after 10 a.m. and gave a brief speech praising Adams as a, quote, eminent character with whom he had enjoyed, quote, a cordial and uninterrupted friendship before he and the rest of the Senate descended to the House chamber to await Adams's arrival. The new vice president was described as wearing, quote, a long blue frock coat, single-breasted and buttoned to the waist, that his lightly powdered hair was in a queue, tied with a black ribbon, that this tall man was straight as an arrow, that his countenance was benign. He would be seated in the front of the chamber when the president-elect arrived, quote, dressed elegantly in a pearl suit, his hair well-powdered, and a sword strapped to his side. The two men then sat and waited for Washington, who arrived a couple of minutes later, quote, dressed in his usual black suit. At noon, it was finally time to make the big transition. Adams was introduced to those assembled and began delivering his inaugural address. He began the speech by recounting a brief history of the nation's journey through independence, revolution, and ratification of the Constitution, which he pronounced, quote, the result of good heads prompted by good hearts, as an experiment better adapted to the genius, character, situation, and relations of this nation and country than any which had ever been proposed or suggested. He then talked about the virtues of the government under the Constitution before turning to some of the potential dangers in it. If you'll bear with me for a moment, I'd like to read this paragraph in its entirety before continuing. Quote, In the midst of these pleasing ideas, we should be unfaithful to ourselves if we should ever lose sight of the danger to our liberties, if anything partial or extraneous should infect the purity of our free, fair, virtuous, and independent elections. If an election is to be determined by a majority of a single vote, and that can be procured by a party through artifice or corruption, the government may be the choice of a party for its own ends, not of the nation for the national good. If that solitary suffrage can be obtained by foreign nations by flattery or menaces, by fraud or violence, by terror, intrigue, or venality, the government may not be the choice of the American people but of foreign nations. It may be foreign nations who govern us, and not we, the people, who govern ourselves. And candid men will acknowledge that in such cases, choice would have little advantage to boast of over lot or chance. Likely given the contention that he knew the statement would cause, Adams then turned his speech towards a subject on which most everyone could agree, namely George Washington. He lavishes praise on his predecessor and pronounces him and his example as, quote, a bulwark against all open or secret enemies of his country's peace, then works up to a crescendo, pronouncing his own good qualities that make him a fit successor, quote, a preference of a free Republican government, an equal and impartial regard to the rights, interest, honor, and happiness of all the states in the Union an inclination to improve agriculture, commerce, and manufacturers for necessity, convenience, and defense, a personal esteem for the French nation formed in a residence of seven years chiefly among them, so on and so forth, before finally concluding that, quote, with this great example before me, with the sense and spirit, the faith and honor, the duty and interest of the same American people pledged to support the Constitution of the United States, I entertain no doubt of its continuance and all its energy, 
and my mind is prepared without hesitation to lay myself under the most solemn obligations to support it to the utmost of my power. And may that being, who is supreme over all, the patron of order, the fountain of justice, and the protector in all ages of the world of virtuous liberty, continue his blessing upon this nation and its government, and give it all possible success and duration consistent with the ends of his providence. After the speech, Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth administered the oath of office, and it was done. John Adams was the second president of the United States. During the ceremony, it was noted that, quote, many of the audience wept unabashedly. As described by Furling, quote, it was, as everyone knew, the end of an era, a realization that made each person in the House chamber feel older and terribly mortal. There was something else that struck each spectator. The inauguration of Adams represented a peaceful transfer of power, a triumph of republicanism. It was a novelty in human affairs. The novelty would very quickly wear off. The day after the inauguration, Adams approached Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott about the idea of sending James Madison as a commissioner to France. Walcott was, in a word, appalled at the idea. This was Madison, the same Madison that for years had been opposing administration policies in the House, and now Adams wanted to send him as an official representative? To be fair to Adams, as we noted earlier from Ketchum, it seems that Adams may not have been the only Federalist discussing the possibility, so the proposal didn't come completely out of left field as it would be depicted and interpreted later. Indeed, it made political sense. After the Democratic-Republican opposition to the treaty with Britain that had been negotiated by a Federalist with no input from the opposition, including a prominent Democratic-Republican in the mix, might ensure a smoother approval process in Congress for whatever agreement could be reached. But still, Madison was seen as a step too far for the Treasury Secretary. As Walcott wrote to Hamilton at the end of the month, quote, I have no confidence in Mr. Madison. He has been a frequenter at Mr. Adet's political meetings. Mr. Madison would insist on a submission to France, or would obstruct a settlement and throw the disgrace on the friends of government. Adams tried to reason with Walcott, asking him, quote, are we forever to be overawed and directed by party passions? To which Walcott asserted that if Adams insisted on appointing Madison, the entire cabinet was, quote, willing to resign. Wow, not a good first full day on the job. Adams decided to relent on the matter, and when he spoke to Jefferson that evening as they walked back to the Francis Hotel from a farewell dinner hosted by Washington, Adams, quote, seemed embarrassed to discuss the mission. But Jefferson brought the matter up and shared with him Madison's refusal to consider the offer. At this point in his life, Madison needed to attend to personal matters as his father was declining in health. In addition to not seeking re-election to the House, he also refused an offer from Democratic-Republican leaders in Virginia to elect him as governor. After eight years of congressional service, Madison at this point just wanted to take his wife and stepson and head home to Montpelier. As noted by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, The increasing frustration and disappointment of the last few years in Congress heightened his relief at his retirement from public life. Adams, however, would see no such relief and could find few around him to whom he could turn for support. 
The Madison incident is credited by Karen Robbins for creating a couple of false impressions. First, due to Adams' willingness to abandon the idea of sending Madison to France, Robbins notes that Walcott felt, quote, that Adams was relatively malleable. Meanwhile, she asserts that Adams had, quote, the mistaken notion that his secretaries were in greater agreement than they were, even that they were in league together. It also proved to be the end of any bipartisan cooperation between Adams and Jefferson, and Jefferson, as Adams had been during his tenure as vice president under Washington, would find himself shut out of deliberations of administration policy, and thus, with no public business to which to attend with the Senate out of session, after making business arrangements to ensure that he was able to receive and draw upon his salary upon his absence from the city and tending to other personal affairs, Jefferson left Philadelphia 10 days after arriving, bound for Monticello. The now former president also made his final arrangements for his departure and called on his successor at the Francis Hotel on March 8th to bid him farewell, escorted on his walk from the presidential mansion by, quote, an immense company, as one man in total silence all the way. Observers reported that Washington's face was covered in tears when he reached the hotel, touched by this last measure of devotion prior to his departure. Their relationship had never been a close one, but Adams and Washington were parting on good terms despite Adams's grumblings about Washington's attempts to sell the furnishings of the presidential mansion as well as, quote-unquote, two old horses to the Adamses. The incoming residents would have none of it, however. He may have retained Washington's cabinet, but Adams would find his own furnishings. Thank you very much. On March 9th, Washington and his party departed from Philadelphia, and Adams would make final arrangements to take up residence in the presidential mansion, the final step in the process of transferring power from one president to the next. On March 21st, he would sleep in the mansion for the first time since taking office, but would share with Abigail the next day that, quote, the furniture belonging to the public is in the most deplorable condition. There is not a chair fit to sit in. The beds and bedding are in a woeful pickle. This house has been a scene of the most scandalous drunkenness and disorder among the servants that I ever heard of. It was now all Adams's, for better or worse. The emphasis for the new president would be on the worse, as word finally arrived in Philadelphia a couple of weeks after the inauguration of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney's arrival in France. As it turns out, not only was there not a warm reception for the new U.S. minister, but there was in fact no reception at all. On December 12, 1796, Pinckney had been informed that the French government would, quote, no longer recognize nor receive a minister plenipotentiary from the United States until after a reparation of the grievances demanded of the American government and which the French Republic had a right to expect. The diplomatic crisis, with its roots in the Washington administration, was now on Adams's doorstep. Before we find out how he dealt with it, however, I feel that it may be worthwhile for us to take a step back and look at the situation in various points around the globe in our next episode, which I would like to call Hither and Yon, the news from abroad. Until then, I'd like to invite you to send any questions, comments, or Inauguration Day 1797 souvenirs to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can reach out via Twitter at presidencies89 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. 
Source notes for this episode, as well as past episodes and subscription options, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Special thanks again to Dan McClellan for providing the English version of this episode's intro quote. As always, I thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.